Well, welcome. It's always good to have a provocative title, too. Uh, the question is, will the content live up to the title? So we'll, we shall see. Uh, shall we pray together, yes? Lord God, we thank you for your word that you give to us. We pray that as we look at this difficult text that uh, you might speak to us, that you might guide us through your Holy Spirit, uh, that we may glorify you in our thoughts, in our words, and in everything we do. We give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, uh, we, we reach now the last lesson uh, on, on a journey that we've been taking on the pastoral epistles. Uh, the first lesson was on the, uh, the, uh, who is God in the pastoral epistles. We said that fundamentally the God of the pastoral epistles is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The second lesson was on uh, how do we know that God. And uh, we concluded from the text that uh, uh, since he is the living Lord and not just another object, uh, he needs to unveil himself, reveal himself to us. And we also say that that's a Trinitarian work. The Father sends the Son who reveals the Father. And the Holy Spirit is the one who opens our eyes to see the Father and the Son. So who God is and how you know God are, is a Trinitarian. And then last week we looked at salvation. And we also noted there a Trinitarian framework. Uh, uh, the Father sends the Son who... Uh, it's an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then the, uh, he, the Father and the Son, pour out the Holy Spirit. Come on in. Welcome. I think we're out of handouts. But perhaps you can share. Uh, and, and now we come to the fourth and last lesson. And, uh, and I've called uh, this lesson dealing with some difficult texts. Uh, the first question is, in what sense are they difficult? Uh, they're difficult, I think, in, in at least two ways. First, they're difficult because they don't seem to match other parts of Scripture or the spirit of Scripture, right? Uh, Paul's statement, I've printed the two texts that we'll look at today in front of you there. Paul's statement about women being silent, full submission, uh, seems different from Galatians 3. There's neither male nor female. All are one in Jesus Christ. Uh, Man and woman being created in the image of God. This particular text seems to be uh, at odds with quote-unquote more benevolent texts on uh, women in the Bible. Uh, same for slavery, the second text that is printed for you. That seems to be at odds with the passage I just quoted. There is neither slave or free uh, and so on. So the texts are difficult because of other texts of scripture, but they're also difficult because of our cultural standing, where we are today, right? Uh, go to a, uh, an industry and a company and say in a meeting, well, the women, please be quiet. <laughs> uh, that's not acceptable in our culture. And of course, slavery is not acceptable in our culture anymore. So the texts are difficult because they... Uh, uh, they, they just hit us, uh, perhaps even anger us as we read them. Uh, so let's, let's deal with these two texts, which are so important, I think. Uh, let's read uh, the, the text, first of all, dealing with uh, 
I hate to put it this way, but they're living with the women. First <laughs> uh, Timothy two nine through fifteen. Uh, the woman, the, the women, excuse me, should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing, not with their hair braided or with gold pearls or expensive clothes, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess reverence for God. Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over man. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. So this text has been used uh, really throughout church history to limit uh, the activity of women in the church. Okay, so... Uh, women can do certain things, but the line has to be drawn somewhere. And when you ask, what is your scriptural reason for that? Perhaps this is one of the main texts that is put forth. They say, look, this is the clear teaching of scripture. Uh, the woman is to be silent. How can you uh, go over that? By the way, I don't know how you uh, how you can uh, correlate that about being a, the clear the clear teaching of scripture. With the last verse, she will be saved through childbearing. We don't we don't say that's a clear <laughs> teaching of scripture. So perhaps the text about the woman being silent, after all, is not so clear. You know what, what's clear to you may not be so clear to me. In any case, uh, rather than going uh, word for word here, which we don't have time, and, and I would probably get bored doing that. Uh, what I want to do is to uh, put forth before you five theses that I think. Uh, emerge from this text um, and use that as a framework uh, to look at, at, at these verses here. Uh, and that's Roman numeral one in your handout, Understanding Paul's Commands for the Silence of Women, Five Theses. Now, before I go into this five theses, let me make a general statement uh, about reading the New Testament in particular that I hope is helpful to you. Uh, one of the biggest mistakes that we make when reading the really the whole Bible but specifically the New Testament epistles, is that we forget that they are occasional documents. That is to say, they were not, they are not timeless theological treatises in the sense that uh, when Paul wrote, he didn't sit down in a quiet room uh, and just, mm, you know, sort of meditated in there <laughs> and whatever got downloaded to his mind, he wrote to the church at Rome or the church at Corinth. No, it's not like that. Paul is a pastor. He's faced with difficult situations, sometimes emergency situations in front of him. And so oftentimes, he's writing uh, to address, well, always he's, he's writing to address particular situations. And that affects uh, his nuances. That affects his uh, what he emphasizes. So let me give you a quick example about this. In Galatians, Paul says, uh, I received the gospel directly from Jesus Christ. There were no intermediaries between the gospel and me. And yet, when you go to 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, when he talks about the gospel, he says that he received this. And what is it? That Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised. Paul, did you receive it? And clearly over there, in 1 Corinthians 15, he's talking about uh, the Christian tradition, the apostolic tradition. Did you receive it from the from the apostles or do you not receive it from the apostles which one is it well you see in Galatians he's writing against people who are uh, bringing into question 
the genuineness of his apostleship. So he says, listen, I got my call directly from the Lord. I went, afterwards, I went and I spoke to Peter and those guys, and they confirmed my gospel. They didn't give me the gospel. So what <clears throat> what he says uh, needs to be read in light of the situation at hand. Very, very important. And so my first thesis is an attempt to uh, distill what I think is the situation in these letters, particularly in 1 Timothy. Number one, there were false teachers in these churches to whom several wealthy, influential, and sometimes unmarried women had attached themselves. These women were spreading the false doctrine. You say, where are the verses for that? <laughs> well, they're called from all over the text. You go to chapter 5, you, hope you go to chapter 2, chapter 6. Uh, you get the sense that there were these wealthy, influential women, many of them unmarried, and uh, somehow the teaching of the false teachers had, had, uh, had hit them, uh, had found a target in, in these women. And these women are spreading the false doctrine. So that is part of the reason why Paul, is, I suggest, is calling the women to be silent. Okay? Um, so that's the situation on the ground. Now, uh, let's go to number two, and we'll, we'll develop this a little bit more. Number two, we must recognize that Paul is not arguing that women, by nature, are fundamentally more easily deceived than men. Okay, and many people have read uh, the passage about uh, Adam was not deceived or the woman was deceived as uh, either uh, uh, an explicit statement or, imp or implying that Paul believes and therefore that God believes because Paul wrote scripture that women are by nature fundamentally more easily deceived than men. In fact, a very popular author I read uh, has a paragraph saying almost that. You believe that? I believe anybody, I mean, I think a woman can be fooled once, but I think it's much, much harder to do it again. So, I mean, yeah, I uh, that's uh, uh, I I I well, here's the problem. This is where many people say you, they read this text and they say, "You see, this is what Paul is saying." I can't believe Paul, especially if you're a woman. I can't believe this. This this is really not. This is not. This is not from Paul. Well, in the age when this was written, women were not as well educated as men. They might have been more easily. Yeah. Persuaded of something. Well, I don't think that applies today. Yeah. Well, we'll come back to that because actually, uh, most men were not educated either. Right. So they were. They had the advantage of women because they they got all the property and everything else. Yeah. Yeah. In that sense, uh, yes. Yeah. I, I don't think that Paul is saying that women are fundamentally more easily deceived than men. I don't see that. I don't see that in Scripture. Uh, I think that uh, there are areas where men can be very easily deceived. I mean, men can be essentially seduced very easily. I mean, the woman just puts the makeup on and puts that face on and you know, <laughs> very easily caught. Uh, 
And there are areas where perhaps women are more easily taken in. Uh, but I don't think that it is a teaching of scripture that women are fundamentally, that woman as woman is fundamentally more easily deceived. Well, if that were the case, uh, and I really owe this insight to my wife, uh, uh, so let's hope that women are not easily deceived, but, uh, uh, which of course I don't believe. Uh, but uh, if it were the case, if it is the teaching of scripture that woman as such is more easily deceived, the logic would be that women should not be able to teach anyone. Do you see that? If a woman can be deceived fundamentally more easily than men, then let's lock them up. And let, let's not let them teach women or children. Do you see? And yet, when you when you continue reading in the pastoral epistles, for example, like I give you the citation there, Titus 2, the women are encouraged to, the older women are encouraged to, encouraged to teach the younger women. You see? But if women are more, are fundamentally more easily deceived, then they shouldn't be teaching any other women. You see? So I don't think that that's what this, that's what Paul is saying in this text. Okay? So what is he saying? Well, let's go to thesis number three here. Because this is where the text becomes problematic. Because Paul seems to ground his injunction for women to be silent in Scripture. You say, well, I don't care what the culture thinks. If Scripture says this, I'll believe it. But how is Paul using Scripture here? So look uh, look back at your handout there, please. You have, uh, I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. And there you see a four that is going to give some sort of grounding for the for the command. For Adam was four first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became, became a transgressor. Clearly, Paul is going back to Genesis 2 and 3, to the creation of Adam and Eve, and in chapter 3, chapter 3 to the deception of Eve, uh, and then... Uh, Adam uh, how are these texts working here are this uh, is this reasoning uh, scriptural reasoning here is it going is it saying uh, this is a timeless teaching uh, that I apply to any situation or is it more illustrative look at thesis number three in your handout this is my suggestion for understanding this text Paul uses Genesis 2 and 3 in an illustrative manner, not a timeless, quote, universal truth. Paul is saying, quote, let me show you an example of what can happen when women want to domineer men. If you respond, well, why then does he use the Bible? Uh, my not-so-nice answer is, what else is he going to use? <laughs> of course he's going to use the Bible, uh, because the Bible is, is his book of all books. So I don't think that this passage is meant to give is, is there to give a theological reason for it. I think it's illustrative. Here's what happens when when women domineer uh, men. By the way, other bad things happen when men domineer women, right? Uh, so so I think that's I think that's the way that that we need we need to understand that. Um, now going back to the beginning of the text. Uh, 1 Timothy 
Uh, that gives us the context a little bit. The women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing, not with their hair braided or with, or with gold, pearls, or expensive clothes. Now, this, that statement that Paul makes here, you find in a bunch of uh, Greek and Roman uh, moral writers of the period. If you read, for example, Plutarch and others, you find the same words uh, when they are uh, teaching people about how the household should be. They say, well, you know, the women should be modest. They should, you know, they used to braid their hair with pearls all around uh, and, and expensive clothes and so on. Uh, and there was also a movement, uh, I believe, uh, going on at that time. Well, not, origin not original, not original. Another another scholar has suggested this, called uh, the, the New Roman Woman, uh, where where there was an, uh, a movement uh, in Asia Minor and in, in the Roman Empire uh, for women to be liberated uh, in a way that was uh, way beyond the mores of the period. Uh, and so, uh, in that case, uh, you could have a woman. Uh, trying to show her independence by braiding the hair with gold and pearls and expensive clothes. Uh, also, I think it's important to, to understand that uh, if these women, and many of them clearly are unmarried, because if you go to chapter 5, Paul says, the women who are unmarried, you know, marry and have children, okay? Uh, instead of going around and gossiping. That's, that was the situation on the ground. Uh, if you're a wealthy woman at that period, you, you're, and you're unmarried, you're probably a patron or patroness. Is that the right word, patroness? Yeah. Uh, probably have a large household with slaves, uh, and probably people would be meeting at their homes for church. I think you see that in Acts 16. Okay. So uh, imagine the possibility for power if the woman is the patron, if she's wealthy, if she's the owner of the household, and everyone comes to, to her house uh, for a Bible study, for a time of worship, and so on, to have the, the Lord's Supper. Uh, and uh, Paul said, given the situation on the ground, Paul uh, wants them uh, to wear suitable clothing. Uh, there are a lot of people who were poor in the early church. Uh, so he's saying, you know, let's not, let's not shame those who are poor by, by going over the top. So... Uh, that is the situation on the ground, and when Paul then tells him uh, not not to teach, uh, I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over men. She's to keep silent. I think uh, that is a command given what was happening uh, there at, at Ephesus, that particular church. By the way, I think you have to pay attention to the way that Paul talks. Paul is a a Jewish man of the first century. Uh, who speaks very bluntly, uh, and, in, and I want to say almost in, in a dialectical way. Like, for example, if you go to chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, he's talking about false teachers, and he says, they've shipwrecked their faith. Well, that's strong language. But, Matt, you've shipwrecked your faith. That's it, I'm an apostate. <laughs> I have no other chance. But then later in that same chapter, he comes back and he says, uh, put them under discipline that that uh, maybe they'll come back to the faith. Uh, wait a minute. You just said they shipwrecked their faith. Are you telling me they have another chance to come back to the faith? See, Paul talks like that. He's very blunt like that. And that, uh, and we need to understand that. Also in chapter 2, when you, uh, when you read verse 15, uh, she will be saved through childbearing. 
Uh, doesn't that contradict justification by faith? <laughs> what do you mean she'll be, she'll be saved through childbearing? Again, he's very blunt. Uh, and it makes me think, I'm from Latin America. My slight accent gave me away, probably. Uh, uh, but, uh, but, but in that culture, uh, you, you could speak uh, to one another and in public uh, that way, in very strong, uh, unnuanced ways. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there's no other option. Okay, so I think we have to understand the way Paul talks. Uh, so again, to, to wrap up the first three theses, there, there, there are false teachers in the church. Uh, they have found a target in wealthy, influential women, sometimes unmarried, who are probably patrons, uh, and empowered by the false teachers, these women are teaching in a way that is domineering. I think it's key that you look at that. Uh, the word, the, I permit no woman to teach or to have authority, the better translation is uh, to teach in a domineering manner. Okay, To teach in a domineering manner. I think you have examples of women doing some sort of teaching in 1 Corinthians, for example. Uh, as long as they do it with their heads covered, Paul says. And as long as they do it respectfully, they can teach in the church. Uh, the problem here, I think, is that they were doing it in a domineering manner. So imagine, if you're wealthy, independent, you've been empowered by the false teachers, perhaps some of the services are being held in your home, it's very easy to become domineering, whether you're a man or a woman. And Paul is saying, I don't want you to do that. And the reason you should not do that is because it is at odds with the respect that the woman should have for the for the man, according to Scripture. See? Okay, let's go to thesis four. Boy, it's time flying. Uh, what is this text about then? I think what this text about then is is about is the following. The church is a household. The church is a household uh, where men and women are to behave in a way that is worthy of the gospel. If you go previously to chapter 2, Paul talks about uh, God wants us to pray for all people. Uh, this is uh, acceptable before God who wants all people to be saved. Okay, it, it, The context is a missional context. And within that context... Men are told to behave in a certain way. Uh, the beginning of, of verse 8 of chapter 2. I want men to lift up holy hands in peace without, without wrath and so on. And then women likewise. So the church is a household where men and women are to behave in a way that is worthy of the gospel. Given the historical situation on the ground at Ephesus, Paul must command the women not to be involved in immodest, provocative and domineering behavior. They should rather behave in a modest manner, which includes the raising of children. And then let me give you the fifth thesis, and then maybe we can have a little discussion about this, more discussion. The purpose for this behavior is gospel-centered, so that they would so that there would not be any obstacles to accepting the gospel. Okay. So what I'm suggesting is that if outsiders from that culture came to some of these homes and saw the behavior of some of the women, that would be an obstacle to the gospel. And Paul says, no. Okay, questions, comments? 
thoughts on this text? Well, Paul was not married. That had a, probably a bearing. Because he had <laughs> no wife and no children. <laughs> And yet he encourages them to have uh, some of the women to have to be married and have children. Well, I mean, but he personally was not married and had no children, so I think that influences this. Um, he has freedom to say things that a married man wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Huh? Interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. <laughs> It occurs to me there are some other places, perhaps in other epistles, where Paul goes so far as to point out that the comments he's making are just his own opinion and aren't necessarily, you know, from doctrine. And, and, I, and it may be on some related topics, I think. Uh, uh, like when he's, when he's talking about how he thinks the, the end of days is really close at hand, and he says it's better for people not to marry, but if you have to marry, go ahead. But then he says, that's just kind of my personal opinion, I might be wrong. He doesn't actually say that, but it sounds like that. Okay. And, and so I wonder if maybe some of these comments that he makes here might be the same kinds of comments where he just doesn't go so far as to qualify them as mm -hmm. just his opinion. Yeah. I think some people take that, that route that you're taking, uh, and, and I could see how Maybe from 1 Corinthians 7, the text that you mentioned, it, uh, maybe you can go that way. I think what's a little bit problematic with that is that the way that Paul begins his letter to Timothy is Paul, apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the command of God the Savior in Christ Jesus. The, mem the moment he portrays himself, as he really is, as an apostle, he's saying, what I am writing to you are is the authoritative word of God, the authoritative apostolic tradition. Um, so... It'd be very difficult, unless you see something in the text that says, this is just my opinion, to uh, to sit over the text and say, well, this is just his opinion, but and this is the word of God. Do you see what I mean? Because he begins that, that his letters like that. Uh, and in fact, in 1 Corinthians 14, at some point he says, uh, pay attention, what I'm writing to you are the words of God. In chapter, four, in chapter 14. So I think we have to be careful with that. Yeah, Matt? yeah. I think I think that's, that's a good point because you know when you're in you know a freshman great books course and you're reading Marx or you're reading Rousseau, you can know well they were raised a certain way or they had these relationship issues or they treated their kids in a certain way and you can kind of read that in with the text. But Scripture is just a whole other bag altogether. And like you said, it's it's Paul and Apostle Jesus, not Paul, a single guy who could kind of get away with yada 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 or well he had mommy issues so. Bible doesn't let us do that, and I think anytime we start trying to take angles on it and reading things like that, it, we start deconstructing to a point where, well, we chip away at what he says here about relationships, and that's okay, but eventually you start chipping away at justification, and you start yeah. chipping away at the overall authority of Scripture, and then you're yeah. something else altogether. It's just a really dangerous technique. That's a good observation, uh, I, but what I'm, I think what I have been suggesting here is that we don't need to go there. I think that if you understand how Paul wrote, that he's a pastor who's addressing situations on the ground, problems on the ground, uh, and he speaks in a very blunt manner, but I, su I suspect that if you were to take him uh, to the corner and say, Paul, are you trying? No, 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 Here, here's what I'm saying. <laughs> but I have to be, you know, uh, just, just imagine 
uh, in a church where there's a lot of stealing, for example. Uh, uh, I could see a pastor maybe saying, if you keep stealing, you're going to hell. Maybe not in our context, but, but you know, but just block like that. You know, uh, why? Because there's so much stealing in that church that, you know, he's a man, he's a woman, he's talking. Uh, but that doesn't mean that uh, that there's no forgiveness for stealing or something like that. You see, you have to understand the way that Paul talks and the way he addresses this, this situation. Okay, when I heard you give that example, my first reaction was, pastor in the church where there's a bunch of stealing going on, it's, it's almost like that's a shock answer to get one's attention. Is that, am I hearing it correctly or yeah. am I mishearing your... No, no, I, uh, I, but I, I think it goes beyond shock. I think because he, he gives some explanation, right? So it's not just uh, let me shake you real quick and then, and then that's it. Uh, but I think that's part of it. Yeah, he's just being very blunt in that way uh, now in our culture maybe that's that's not acceptable or that's not very common but I think in that culture it would be well it works when my wife communicates with me. <laughs> 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 well look there was uh, uh, Randy Richards he's a he's a, uh, a professor uh, who uh, a friend he's, he was he was a missionary in Indonesia and uh, over there uh, he was at a meeting uh and they were talking about church polity and things like that. And uh, uh, he he mentioned uh, they he asked about the, the women teaching and so on. And and, and the guy said, no, they can't do that. And then uh, at the next day, uh, the service, which was supposed to start like at six, it started at seven thirty or something like that. But uh, there are some women who start to teach in the middle of the service. And he asked them, well, wait a minute, you told me that they that they can't teach. And they said, well, you know. Sometimes <laughs> it's it's uh, the way language is used. I think it's a little bit different. Sometimes, um, sometimes Paul is like that great old Jewish comedian whose name escaped me right now, but whose tagline at the end of his, his cabaret show was, "Now, is there anyone out there whom I have not offended?" <laughs> Mark, Paul, when you're teaching this to students and thinking about moving from a first free world where you have cultural context that's significantly different than our world, yet there, there is some kind of analogical relationship between what's going on in the text and how we think about it in our own world. How do we navigate that? Because um, especially with questions about sexual ethics in the public sphere, I mean, this, this gets really tricky multiple levels. Because I can see us kind of getting pushed to course and you want to have your cake and eat it too. Kind of so what, what are the what are the sort of interpretive principles you use to make that analogical move that's a legitimate move from what Paul is saying in this world to how we think about ethical ordering of church life now? I mean, how, how do you help students sort of think through that? Yeah, well, it's not simple. I think that's the first thing that we have to say, right? The idea that I can take a verse from Scripture and say, here's an unequivocal one-to-one uh, -one correlation to the modern world. That's very difficult to do. Because there is a huge mind the gap. There is a huge uh, chasm between our world and the ancient world. So you know some things clearly uh, were are bound to that culture. For example, greet each other with a holy kiss. 
If I if I ask you all to say, is that applicable for all time or not? You know, depending where you come from, uh, you might say, no, that's clearly that's just cultural. So the difficulty is navigating, knowing what's something that was bound to the culture and something that uh, goes beyond the culture, right? Uh, that's one thing. The other thing is, I think it's important to look at the whole sweep of scripture. Uh, there is a, a gentleman. Uh, his name is William Webb. You might want to you might want to look at, at his book. It's called uh, "Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals." Uh, so, so there is a title, uh, and uh, <laughs> and and he he reads the Bible in a very sophisticated manner, in which he suggests that there is a uh, redemptive movement in Scripture. That is to say, uh, in the Old Testament, for example. Uh, women had less liberties. But as you read the text and you go to the New Testament, there is a movement towards towards more freedom in that sense. Same thing with slavery. There's a movement, as we're going to see, I think, to there being no slavery. What about homosexuality? He actually says that there's the opposite way. Uh, where there was more freedom in the culture for there to be homosexuality, the Bible actually goes against uh, there is no forward movement, if you will. So uh, that's part of it, I think, reading hermeneutically like that. Um, uh, seeing what Paul says in other places. You know, does he say the same thing in the different epistles? That's a good clue that this is something that, that, that it's uh, um, permanent and so on. Uh-huh. And I'm a simple observation, but I, I do feel that human nature probably has been simple from the very beginning. And actually, there are lots of similarities. We always say, oh, each generation is different. But actually, that generation then was probably struggling the same issues as us. In diff- I mean, they're those issues, I don't believe, I may be wrong, have changed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> there, may, there was a cultural norm, obviously, between countries. And possibly now, those cultural norms have changed because of communication and world travel. Yes. But, but I, I think that... I don't know, maybe wrong, but they still, if that time is struggled the same issues as we are, I think it's a pretense to say that they didn't struggle with, with, with all those social issues, and we're just struggling. Each generation thinks it's different, but I don't believe that. Yeah. I think with all struggling with a simple foreign man from then until now. Sure, maybe the way that that gets expressed is different. It's different. Maybe, yeah. Yes, you know, it's like they still had the issues of bringing up, they still had those same worries. I, I don't know what makes them wrong. Yeah. No, no, no. I do, I do think that uh, the relationship between men and women, the dynamics between men and women, has o- that has always been from the beginning. <laughs> right? Uh, it's just expressed differently. Now, one of the things that we have to be careful is that we want to, and Mark, I think this goes a little bit to your answer, is that sometimes we want to make Paul or Peter or whoever uh, a man of the 21st century. Right. Uh, we want him, to, uh, for example, the text on slavery that maybe we'll look at. I hope we get to look at real quick. Uh, you know, some people get angry. They say, why didn't Paul say, do away with slavery? Period. Why didn't he say that? Well, because <laughs> in that culture, uh, if you say that, um, you didn't have the freedom, for example, to go and pick it. Say, you know, down with slavery. Are you kidding me? Paul couldn't go. Like, 
you know, we have in the in the, in the Western world and in North America and Western Europe and some other countries uh, where you can go and you can lodge a protest. Protest. Oh yeah, just cut your head off. You know, so uh, yeah, so we have to be we have to we have to be careful with that. Um, let me see what else what did I want to say here. Yeah. Yeah, I see what you mean. I think I, I, I like to think about it that he went about derailing those other things in a different way. Okay, uh, planting the seeds that it would eventually do away with some of those things. Um, it's so, important to remember that, that Roman slavery was not the same as American slavery. Yeah, we're, we're, we're going to... That colors our view of that. So yeah. It wasn't the same. We're going to turn to that in just a minute. Any other questions uh, about about the issue here? But uh, I think... Uh, uh, yeah, I think you have to read this in context. Uh, it is a strange passage. Uh, this this passage about women being silent on teaching or not teaching. Uh, it's... Uh, I, I, and a lot, a lot of it uh, is where you begin. If you begin with the Gospels and, and, the, and the freedom that the women have with Jesus, following Jesus and serving Jesus, and you continue to go to the Acts of the Apostles where uh, you have Priscilla and Aquila, and Priscilla is almost always named first when Priscilla and Aquila, uh, when, they're, when they're mentioned. Very rare in the ancient world for the, the wife to be mentioned first prior to the men uh, as a couple. Uh, and, and, and the two of them uh, instruct Apollos, for example. Uh, you have a number of statements, and it's where you begin. If you begin with those statements, then this passage of First Timothy is going to seem, seem strange to you. Wait a minute, Paul. Galatians 3.28. All, all are one in Christ, neither male nor female. And now, what, do you, what is this text? Right? And I'm suggesting, what I'm suggesting is that if you look at the historical context, and if you understand what he's doing with Scripture there, I think uh, it's easier to see that there, is a, there are tensions, but there, there is continuity uh, between other passages of Scripture and First Timothy 2. Um, let me move. Uh, let me move then to uh, to the text on slavery here. Um, if you turn the page on your handout, um, uh, trying to understand Paul's command to slaves. Uh, just a couple of words about slavery in the ancient world. So Matt. Well done, anticipating. Um, slavery in the ancient world was not race-based. That's very, very important to understand. In contrast to slavery, uh, modern slavery, uh, where it's much more race-based, in the ancient world it was not. It was not the color of your skin, and it did not have anything to do with your education. For example, uh, many Greek slaves ended up in Rome. And the children of the rich Romans uh, wanted to learn Greek. They wanted to read their Homer. Uh, that was that was a cultural uh, badge of sophistication. Can you read Greek? And guess who's going to teach those kids Greek? It's the slaves, the Greek slaves. So it didn't have anything to do with the color of their skin, the level of education. Some of them were the best educated in that period. So it's a very, very different uh, issue. Uh, secondly, 
I think that you have to understand that the socioeconomic structure of that period uh, obviously was not like today. I mean, today I, I want to be free and I want to go do my thing, uh, go get a job. Uh, not so easy in the ancient world, right? Uh, it actually makes me think of something that that I saw in my in my native country, in Dominican Republic. Very poor country. Uh, if you are anywhere from middle to upper middle class to, to wealthy, uh, you have a maid in the home, okay? And that maid does everything for you. Like I didn't, I didn't make a bed until I was 13 until I moved to, to, to America. So, you know, you wake up, you're, they make your bed, your breakfast is ready, the, the espresso coffee is on the table, everything great. Uh, and, uh, and, so, and you look at it and you say, um, you know, this woman do so much, uh, and, and, and some people pay them so little. Not right. You have to pay them back. You should pay them better. But uh, if those women left your home, they would probably starve because there was no there was no socioeconomic structure for those women to have a job to raise their children. Right. Uh, so they had to be there. They had to be there. They would get their three meals at home. They have a place to live. Uh, in the best scenarios, they would get paid well. And they could pay for their children's school, and so on, and so on. I think it's similar like that with slavery in the ancient world. If you were a slave and you you wanted to free yourself, there was no guarantee that you were going to have uh, a work or where your next meal was going to come from. Okay, so I think it's important that we understand that. That's the context of ancient slavery. Now, uh, what I want to point out here is uh, that Paul. Uh, it's talking in the context of a household code, is what New Testament scholars call this. Uh, that is, he's addressing the different members of the family. You address the patron, the father, the mother, the children, the slaves. Uh, everyone gets a word for how what their behavior should be like. Uh, it is probable, it is certain that uh, in ancient Christian homes there were slaves. Okay, uh, if not, why would Paul be writing to slaves? mentioning slaves here. So slaves were part of the, of the Christian home uh, back then. Uh, now, what I want to show you here is something really neat, uh, how Paul, I think, uh, begins to plant the seeds that will eventually do away with slavery. And it is this. Uh, if you look at the text, uh, turn back to the first page, please. He says... Uh, all who are under the yoke of slavery regard their masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be blasphemed. You see, again, it's, mission, it's the missional. We don't want the gospel to be blasphemed. So, so, so behave in a way that is honor, honorable towards them. Those who have believing masters, there you go, must not be disrespectful to them on the ground that they are members of the church. Right? We all can see how that happens. Uh, Rather, they must serve them all the more, since those who benefit by their service are believers and beloved. Now, the word that Paul uses there for those who benefit is, is, a, is a particular word. Uh, and and uh, it's a word that was used for benefaction in the ancient world. It's a word that was used for benefaction. Uh, I'm going to throw the Greek at you there. Uh, El Garcias. Uh, benefaction. Now, listen to this. <laughs> this is incredible. The only benefactors in the ancient world were the wealthy, the wealthy men and women. 
who owned slaves, who gave grain to the town, who had statutes built, they were viewed as the benefactors of the society. Paul is saying that when the slaves serve them with honor, uh, things are getting reversed. The slaves are becoming the benefactors of the owners. Now, if you would have told an owner that your slave is your benefactor, that would have been offended. What? <laughs> I'm his benefactor. I own him. I own her. But Paul is saying when you serve them in Jesus Christ and you do it with honor, what God is doing is he's using you as a benefactor over them. And by saying that, he's leveling the playing field, as it were. He's basically saying uh, he's not intrinsically better than you. You're not intrinsically better than him. Right? So I think that, that from this text and many other texts, Paul is planting the seeds that in time and culture, we think of Wilberforce and so on, uh, there's going to be an explosion and, and slavery is going to begin to be abolished and so on. So he doesn't say, slaves, take off, go, because if he, if he would say that, they were going to starve, probably. They might have to go to the mines to work. Okay? Uh, so I, I, I think that's... Uh, that's what's going on there. Any questions or comments as we we have? Uh, let's see, just a couple more minutes. Yes. Uh, back to the uh, first passage. Uh huh. On, on women uh, supporting your idea that this is reflective of a certain group of women. The text starts out with the, the women, a definite article. Is that is that grammatically significant? In other words, is that different from all women. Yeah, you know, in Greek there is there is no there is no definite article. Okay. Yeah, I think the, the, that's more the English to uh, to show you that that he's addressing a different group. He has addressed the men or men and now women. Uh, so no, I don't think I don't think that's significant. Uh, but if I might just say one more one last thing about that verse about that text is uh, how do we understand verse 15? The, la the very last verse. Where does it start? Uh, yet. Right, I should have put the numbers there. Good question. <laughs> yet. She will be saved through childbearing. And is that a clear teaching? <laughs> <laughs> You're being saved by childbearing. Does it not divide it? I don't know. It's... <laughs> So, but, but, you, but you see, that's the issue. We wouldn't go around saying it is a clear teaching of Scripture that uh, that women can only be saved uh, if they if they bear children. You see, is the Greek here the same as it is in other instances? Yeah, it's the same. There's the Greek won't help you there. <laughs> so my point is this: my point is that we take for granted that that passage cannot mean exactly what it seems to say. What I'm saying to you, I, what I'm saying to you is that we should treat the other text also in the same way. It probably is not meaning exactly what is what we think it might say, because you have to look at the historical context in order to make better sense. So the way I interpret this text is that uh, this wealthy, independent women who are falling into the hands of false teacher, the best thing they could do, they, they could do to get back to the faith, to get back on track, is to stop being, uh, being uh, busybodies, marry, dedicate yourself to the home, and but he says, 
in faith and love and holiness, okay, in, in, with faith in Jesus Christ, and that way you you'll be protected from the false teaching and from wrecking your faith. I think that's what he's saying there. All right. Uh, you have <laughs> yeah, just one other thing. You know, going back to Genesis, there there were two ramifications of the fall for women. One was pain of childbearing, and the other was that your husband will rule over you. And it's interesting that we're kind of talking about both of those uh-huh. here as to sort of maybe maybe what Paul's saying is those are the ground rules, you know, and don't worry about them. Focus on focus on something bigger than that. Mm. Yeah, I, I actually was wondering if Paul is actually going beyond the curse, beyond that, that in Jesus Christ, uh, that's being reversed, uh, and so there is more freedom now. Yeah. Okay, I think we'll have to stop there. Thank you for coming. Thank Blessings you. on you.